0: If you want to talk about an interesting story, I mean, uh, one of the big power brokers in Southern Afghanistan was a guy named Golaga Shurzai, who assisted the United States in overthrowing the Taliban back in 2001 when we invaded. Um, And what we basically did is he had a bunch of tribal enemies that hated him. And so he would give us, he would help us in our counterterrorism efforts by giving us lists of people that were conspiring with insurgents against us, right? Well, it turns out we'd go bust in their doors, you know, in the middle of the night with special forces, you know, and shoot them or take them prisoner and it turns out they're just his personal enemies like i mean they they may or may not have any sort of you know and we were doing that for years right we were we had we were just like oh i trust this guy you know and not not realizing all this is happening but Welcome to How I Embraced
1: the Suff, a podcast where you get to hear from veterans what life in the military is really like. I am your host, Walt, and before we start, you should know that I do not censor the show in any
2: way you have been warned
0: Oh man, I've got all the time, man. Thanks for having us on. It's rock and roll.
1: Yeah, so we'll just kick it right off uh, with a with a first for the show. We have three three guests all at the same time, so this is gonna be this is gonna be fun. We got Kyle, Zach, and Stu. How's it going, guys?
0: Man, it's going great. Just glad to be here. Thanks for having us on, man. Thanks for uh, bringing veterans on to tell their stories too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I should actually I should say for listener that was Kyle. So there's a voice to listen to. And then uh, Zach.
2: So wanna... I'm, I'm Zach. I'm also doing well. Um, long Monday at work after a three-day weekend, but thank God I have a beer in my hand now. So we're good to go.
1: Nice. And then Stu.
3: Yep. Hey, everyone. Stu. Uh, ha- happy to be here. It's uh, it's cool interfacing with other military-focused podcasts. So really appreciate Walt having us on.
1: Awesome. Sweet. Well, yeah, this is, this is going to be a little different. So, so one question I like to ask everybody, um, usually toward the end, but since this is different, we're going to shake, we're going to shake it up. Um, what would you, um, if a, if a 17 year old came to you and said, I'm considering joining the military, what's your advice for me? What would you tell them?
0: Do you have any better options? (laughs) Have you considered a life of crime? (laughs) (laughs) No, but but in all seriousness, I, I mean, we we'll probably go into it too. Is I would say, you know, it's certainly there are benefits from joining the military. Most of those benefits you won't see until later in life. You know, you won't see until after your time in. But there there are some really good benefits. and, it, and if you play your cards right and, 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 you know, it can set you up with some decent skills and decent certifications that you can use to take into the civilian world. And if you want to make it a career, that's a thing I, I don't really talk about. Cause I don't know what having a military career is like, but um, yeah, I would say, you know, w- w- what, what do you want to do? And, and do you have better options if you don't want to do this, you know, your entire life, basically, if you don't want to make a career out of it.
2: Yeah. I, I would say you need to make sure you have a plan. Like, I'm joining the army or I'm joining insert whatever branch isn't a plan, right? It's a it's a thought. It's an idea. It's a thing you're going to do right Mm. Um, for to to use an anecdotal example. My wife's my guess my sister in law's son is about to graduate high school and was talking about joining the Marine Corps because he wants to eventually get into gunsmithing. Like, that's not going to that's not going to set you up for success. Fucking gunsmithing. Uh, You're you're just going to go be a Marine for four years or however long you're going to do it. You're not going to actually be prepared. So go to a trade school, you know, learn some welding and some fabric, you know, some fabrication. And I live in Idaho where there's gunsmiths in every major town and most of the minor towns. Like, go get some sort of, you know, on the job experience working for these guys. That's how you would become a gunsmith, right? So if if you're going to join, if the plan is, you know, and and like I said, if the plan is, I'm going to do four years, get the GI Bill, then go to college, or I'm going to do four years, and if I'm still not sure what I'm going to do, I'll reinvest and do a couple more years, but it's not too bad, right? But ultimately, you know, in a vacuum, don't just go, I'm going to join the Army. Make sure you have a plan, whether it's four years or 20 years or whatever.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing for people joining now, as opposed to when we joined, is we we joined when there were you know two long conflicts going on, and there was kind of a like direction for your uh, for your service or you know however long your contract was. It's likely that you are going to either Iraq or Afghanistan, whereas now it's more I don't know, it's little little more nebulous. Joining in peacetime is something that we don't have direct experience with and you know it could go various number of ways because like say you you end up going to korea you know you'll probably have a pretty similar experience as someone who went to korea 10 years ago you know and become worldly and get to see a lot of different cultures Hmm. but if you're looking to like get into you know the the action or whatever you're pretty much not going to see any outside of like you know various special forces groups that are, you know, going to maybe Africa. So yeah, it's, it's, it's different. I'd I'd say the military was a formative experience, I believe for all of us. And I think overall positive, despite a lot of the, uh, a lot of the BS that you you have to deal with at various points. So I'd, I'd, I'd say go for it. Just have, you have to you have to know what you're getting into it's definitely not something to just jump into without a plan like zach said
1: sure yeah yeah that's a nice uh nice consistent viewpoint across the board there (laughs) so what um yeah for listener i mean like maybe like a truncated view from each of you what what's kind of your your background why what motivated you to join um etc
0: guys just want to do this in order, we can do that. I'll, uh, the order we went last time. (laughs) I, uh, it's Kyle here. And, uh, yeah, so I graduated college with a degree in in journalism, which is about as useful as, you know, a lot of other things I've done in my life. And, um, that was back in 2011. And as you know, it's like the height of, I guess the, I mean, the third or fourth once in a lifetime economic crisis we've experienced in our lifetime. So there weren't exactly a whole lot of jobs out there. I, uh, had applied to go through, um a couple of the OCS schools, but they were just full up and they were just only taking like ROTC grads or just people from the academies at the time. So I was like, man, I don't have anything else to do. So I just I, I uh I got a big bonus to be a Korean linguist, went to language school out at Defense Language Institute. And um yeah, I, I didn't really have anything better to do, man. I was like twenty one years old and just no no real plan for the future. So to me it was just like a place to just bide my time and try to figure out what I wanted to do in life.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, this is, this is Zach for the, for the audience. I went to college for three semesters and was wholly unmotivated to be in college. Um, my, well, one, I went to college on the other side of the country, which, um, if you're 18 and you don't have the discipline to go to college you know, probably stay in state. However, I, had I stayed in state, I probably would have had the same grades. It was either A's or F's, right? I either liked the class or I didn't like the class, or I didn't go to the class. Um, but after three semesters, I got a letter from the college saying, hey, you, uh, you're no longer a student here. So I was like, well, I, I need to figure something out. Uh, I actually joined the Air Force at the advice of my parents who both retired from the Army, because mm. um, their Air Force quality of life is significantly better. Uh, that was, uh, I joined the Air Force, I went to MEPS, I signed my paperwork, did my oath of enlistment, all that stuff. And then my, my ship date to Texas got pushed back four months, and I didn't want to sit around on my parents' couch in North Carolina for four months. So I wrote my congressman and got a discharge from the Air Force and went over to the Army recruiter and joined the Army. And that's how that happened. Nice. Yeah, I guess I had
3: a pretty similar journey as Zach. Um, the 08 crisis happened. My dad uh, was was had a construction company at the time, so that that went away. Him, him, and my mom moved across the country, and I attended the local college also for three semesters and uh, missed uh, missed a lot of class. I actually failed a uh, a uh, weightlifting class that you just had to show up to, uh, so. W- wasn't really going anywhere there, um, and I actually failed at a community college, so I'm a little more, a uh, little more down to the streets than Zach is. Anyway, that that wasn't working out, so I said, "Well, I'll, I guess I'll I'll try the military thing out." I actually was in Air Force ROTC in college, and was initially planning to join the Air Force. However, the Air Force recruiter was never there for like four months. I kept trying to. Uh, hmm. reach in, didn't return calls, anything, because they, they really don't need people depending on, on the uh, time of year or the year in general. So I said, well, screw it. I'll, I'll check out the army. Went in and uh, they had an opening for um, Intel, which I actually had a huge wait for. I think I I signed up for it and I didn't go to MEPS for like six months. Oh, wow. I said, whatever. Yeah, just... Diddled around at uh, at the local
2: Walmart for a few months and then shipped out. Right? Huh? Yeah. So yeah, the Air Force was not hurting for recruits during the financial crisis. Um, it's a pretty open secret that they have the uh, the best uh, quality of life, and they don't have to do shit to recruit people.
1: Right. Yeah. He he doesn't have to be in the office to fill his his. Uh... Oh my goodness! Excuse me. <clears throat> to fill his uh roster for the for the month or whatever so so you the three of you actually met in uh in Afghanistan correct when you were you you were in the military and then you contracted correct and you 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 were all contracting yes, yeah. when you met each other yes
0: we were hmm yep all in Kandahar yeah okay
1: gotcha gotcha yeah so what um let's see correct me if I'm wrong I think Stu did you you deploy Iraq correct
2: oh uh, no that that was, oh, Zach. That was Zach okay
1: Okay. And then but Kyle and Stu both of you uh did either of you deploy to Iraq or just Afghanistan?
0: Just af- just Afghanistan. Okay. Yeah. okay. And then my whole career was just Afghanistan based, despite the Korean linguist sort of Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so well that's okay. So you you had a Korean language, was it just that you weren't needed in Korea or what what was what was the bureaucratic process that Dude, you I have no idea. somewhere else?
0: I, I have no idea. Okay. I, I completed graduated top of my class in Korean's uh, the Korean language school out in Monterey and um and I got my orders my follow on orders to Fort Texas to an aviation battalion so um I mean it is what it is I I, I got to do really cool stuff and fly with really good people uh, people I'm still friends with to this day I mean just hanging out in those biplanes with small crews and. Mm flying around Afghanistan so that was fun I'd rather do that than linguist work to be honest with you but yeah at the time I was like what the hell is this man Fort Hood Texas what am I doing Fort Hood Texas you know
3: why Kyle they replaced you with natives
0: they they (laughs) did that's a whole that's a whole different story but yeah Kim Jong Il had died like the year I went in so there's a whole there was a need for Korean linguists but they also had this other program for native Koreans and it screwed up promotions and yeah there was yeah it's a whole deal I won't go into that here but yeah uh, yeah Fort Hood
1: so, so they were, they, uh, um, oh my goodness. Wow. They, um, gave precedence to, to Koreans or native Korean speakers who were already in the military. To, to yeah. Yeah. To they, they, they,
0: Yeah. And well, not even just post to Korea, but just promotion points. So basically, if you were in and you were a native Korean at the time, they would offer you a chance to switch over to become a cryptologic linguist if you were not a cryptologic linguist. And all you had to do basically was complete your follow on training, the language school, which is like a two and a half month course. And uh, if they did that, they got a promotion. So mm, um, okay. basically, it filled up all the promotion slots ahead of people getting out of language. Anyway, it's it's a right, whole whole right. nightmare of promotion stuff. But yeah, but I, that's probably one of the reasons. But I mean, it worked out for me, I guess. But it kind of seemed kind of shitty at right, the time. Right. Right. <laughs> so so you were Kyle. You were in
1: planes. Were were the other you t- other two? Stuart, Zach. Were you? What was your? Were you in uh, like um um, what's it called skiffs? You were in skiffs, right? Or were you? What what was going on with your day-to-day in afghanistan
3: yeah in fact in fact i was in the opposite of planes because i was airborne so <laughs> particularly focused on jumping out of leaving but, no yeah yeah we, we both worked in in skiffs basically just an office building with a code on the door that makes it super secret in the <laughs> special and yeah just making powerpoints uh, <laughs> that's that's the the vast majority of uh, of Analytical work is uh, heavily reliant on Microsoft Office, so you can you can thank Bill Gates for powering the military
1: for 30 years. Right. Zach, did you... Yeah, have... I, I, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, did you want to piggyback off of that?
2: I, I very much enjoy all the time I spent on Microsoft Office, because now in the real world, like I work with people who don't know how to use Microsoft Office. I'm like, do you know how to use PowerPoint? Like, let me tell you. Right. That's all I know. I'm... Um, a direct no, I was, I was military in, skills. Exactly. I was, I was in the skiff. Um, and then when I was in Iraq, uh, second part of Iraq, I was in a skiff. The first part, which was pretty cool. I got to work in what was Saddam Hussein's, uh, theater room in his palace. Oh, right. That, that was our, yeah, that was our skiff. So, you know, that was pretty nice.
1: And you, uh, you were hitting golf balls and stuff, right?
2: I was right. every Sunday morning. So we had, you know, we, we had a, you uh, know, an op tempo a battle rhythm like everybody has. And for whatever reason, there just weren't as many meetings on Sunday morning, I guess the war always took a break on Sunday morning. So that meant I had fewer products to do Saturday night, and I was always the night shift guy. Mm. So every Sunday morning around 4am, I'd have about two hours left in my shift, I'd go up to the roof, And there's, I mean, there's just random ass golf clubs and golf balls from over the years. And I grab like a cigar, a couple, you know, packs of cigarettes, and just hit golf balls for the next hour, and then come back for, you know, the uh, the shift change to my relief, and get ready to go home.
4: Hmm.
1: So, what was any of you? What was what was a difference or the difference kind of uh, in feel between being active duty and then contracting?
0: you just had to do so much less what I would call military bullshit. Mm. So the military is really cool apart from the actual bureaucratic nightmare of it. So if it was like flying in planes or just, you know, doing briefings and stuff like that, it's pretty, pretty awesome to be honest. Um, So, but then between all that, you had, you know, dumb change of command ceremonies, change of responsibility ceremonies, like uniform inspections, stuff like that. And it's just like, All that stuff piles up over time, you know, sexual harassment, assault prevention meetings that you had to attend regularly, stuff like that. And it all, it all piles up to where you're like, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Am I supposed to be doing all this bureaucratic nonsense or am I supposed to be flying on a plane, like trying to hunt bad guys down? And so that's one thing you got in the contractor world is like the pay was better, obviously, but just. I didn't have to go to like a change of command ceremony. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't have to right. like stand there at attention in the freezing cold for no fucking reason. You know what I mean? So,
2: you get to was, just do your job. Parts. Right. Like, you the, know, the biggest difference, I would show up. I would, you know, you still call everybody by their rank because you're just, you, you're you a creature of habit and you just do your job. And it was great. You were there the same hours as everybody who was wearing the uniform. But you didn't have to, like, like Kyle said, you didn't have to deal with the bullshit. You didn't have to deal with, you know the 82nd rolled in, and within a month of having the 82nd in our in our skiff, they pulled like every fucking private to do area beautification in Kandahar, which is the most 82nd thing you could possibly fucking do. And I remember looking at Stu, I'm like fuck, I'm so happy I'm not in anymore, right? Because the uh, these are these are young soldiers who are privates who are, you know, they've all been in the army for maybe a year, a year and a half this is the best opportunity they're going to have to learn how to do their job with you know people like Stu and I because Kyle was gone but who had done the job for you know between the two of us over a decade by that point plus you know the 15 other contractors who you know amongst them have over 100 years of experience as well but instead they're out doing the you know the military bullshit, as as Kyle would would say you know they're they're, you know, consolidating beds that aren't being used. They're painting rocks and stupid shit like that. Like that's the biggest difference. And and that was the shining example of the biggest difference, just not having to do stupid shit like that.
3: Yeah. And I think that's a pretty common complaint for a lot of people in the military is that they're, they're the happiest when they're doing their job, but they just do it. So, uh, <clears throat> so seldomly for, for some, especially, uh, Especially the combat arms guys, you know they mm, they right. get straddled with a lot of the army bullshit, and because their job so specialized, you know you can't you generally can't be out at the range, you know, like every day or conduct and you know practice operations or training operations. So mm. you end up you end up mowing lawns or <laughs> or painting rocks or, or sweeping sweeping wet sidewalks was an interesting one I right. saw, uh, but that, that was more of a punishment, but. Yeah, people just get strapped with things that they didn't sign up for, and that's the uh, that that's the main thing that people don't realize before coming in is you're signing up to do this thing, but it's going to come with all of this baggage that you have to deal with. Along along with you know, generally at some point someone's going to get a boss that they don't like, and that person just has so much control over your your life, and you're just stuck with it. So the various various bullshit that culminates in you know uh, 20 to 30 percent of having a great time doing your job
1: right yeah yeah and if you get uh if you get basically a bad boss you don't have the civilian options like a civilian can be like well i mean i could quit or i could move or something whereas in the military you're you have some transfer options but it's not like uh it's not that easy
3: yeah, and your your civilian boss can't make you do physical exercise until you throw up or pass <laughs> right.
1: out. So that's a <laughs> slight difference.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, it's a shock for some people. Ooh,
1: the uh Well, okay, so so yeah, all, all three of you are out. Now, um what's what's kind of how would you compare con because contracting isn't the same as like a regular civilian job either. It's it's kind of betwixt and between. What what would you what would your contrast be there?
0: Yeah. So I'll preface it and just say that I'm I'm completely out of the field entirely. Like I went back to school, got a whole other degree. I do something entirely different now. I mean, I just have a passion for Afghanistan, you know, GWAT and veterans and all that. But, um, but yeah, I, I think um, the, you know, the difference, I, I guess it's very rigid. I mean, it's like seven days a week, like 12 hours a day, you know, hmm. and uh, you're always expected to I mean, we were, I mean, pretty much predict the future. Basically like the Oracle at Delphi, you know what I mean? Like they'd, they'd come to you and want to know, like, is this thing, is this a good idea? Like what's happening here, you know? And you're just kind of going by the information you have access to. And then it, when it turns out to be wrong or like, you know, not correct or something, sure there's a wrench in that plan. You know, you're, you're going to probably get chewed out, but it's not not that big of a deal. It's a lot, a lot chiller, a lot more chill, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you guys feel
3: about predictive analysis like i don't know it's like predictive analysis is an interesting thing because 95 percent of the time you just look at what's happened before and you say yeah the same thing is going to happen but that five percent of the time when something else is going to happen and you call it makes you feel like a fucking god, and everyone everyone loves you for about an hour and then you get back to stupid soldier bullshit but yeah that is that that's definitely I guess the the biggest high of the intel field is is calling something.
2: Hmm. Oh yeah for sure. And I I don't I unfortunately don't have that. I don't get that high in my current job. I work in uh, food manufacturing. So I get the you know I I there are some things I do that are more military related. You know I manage 40 people now. I was a I was a squad leader in the army. Now I like you know I was 10 people. Now it's 40 people. Hmm. So I deal with a lot of personalities. Um as a contractor, I mean, some of what's carried over is I am, um, I like Kyle said, right? You're, the Army is a lot more rigid and I'm not as rigid now as I was as a squad leader, right? There's there's a little bit of sure. give in the rules and stuff like that. You know, I, I'm able to, to take a step back and look at something objectively and say, okay, is this a big deal? Is it not a big deal? What's the rule say? Well, let's go talk to HR and see why this isn't even a rule. Maybe we can just get rid of it, you know? I can't go to, you know, the Army G1 and say, "Hey, this part of AR 670-1's fucking stupid. Let's get rid of it. It's not going to fly that way." <laughs> right. But Stu is absolutely right. There is like within the intel field there is nothing like being right when everybody else was not wrong, but not right.
1: Right, right. When you predict something and and blow everybody's mind. Yeah. It uh well, that, <clears throat> that wasn't quite formulated. Um, well, okay, let's, uh, so what drew my attention to you guys and the reason we got all three of you on here at once is um, you also have your own podcast uh, called The Boardwalk. What's, what's kind of the background, the, what started that, what brought you guys, specifically the three of you together,
0: um, what's the focus of the show, et cetera? Zach Zach, you can take this one because you're you're the one that contacted us to get involved in it. So okay. oh, <laughs>
2: um the the boardwalk was created out of pandemic boredom. Um, I you know sit around my house, a lot a lot of everybody's day-to-day just you know way of living changed. And so I was home a lot more often. I didn't have a lot of stuff to do, and I was talking to somebody and they said, uh you know, you should because I, I was telling about how just awful the news coverage is these days. Like, well, you should, you know, check out these podcasts because these people on on these news programs on their podcasts they're a lot different. You know, they're you know Rachel Maddow is not as Rachel Maddow as she is on her podcast, mm. and Ben Shapiro's not as Ben Shapiro as he is on his podcast. And I was like, okay, and so I gave him a try. Like these, they sound just as fucking bad on their podcast as they do on their programs. And i thought well if this is what's coming out from the from you know big media i'm like we could do this at a minimum we could just vent about shit, you know because Stu, kyle and i do not align on everything right uh, Stu and i are a lot more uh politically similar than we are with kyle because kyle's wrong no i'm kidding it's just because we all have you know we have our our, our minor differences i thought this would be a pretty cool idea to get three of us mm. who don't see eye to eye on things, but, you know, would daily walk around that that boardwalk in Afghanistan. We'd do like two laps after lunch and talk about anything under the sun. And there'd be some agreements, there'd be disagreements, and we'd just go right to work afterwards, right? And, And we just left it at that. And around the time of the idea is when President Biden announced that we were going to be leaving Afghanistan. And when we all got together for our first episode, like well, we should do it about Afghanistan, obviously. And we talked for like an hour about Afghanistan before we ever hit the record button. We got done with the episode, and we're like, "This is probably just going to be an Afghanistan podcast moving forward," and that's what it became.
1: Right? Huh. So, so yeah. What uh, you mentioned the boardwalk itself. What's the what's the background behind the name?
2: The the boardwalk is a wooden structure in Kandahar Airfield. Um, i don't know i think it's like a mile or not a mile what a half mile or something like that if you if you walked it and it was lined with uh stores and stuff like that and that's where mm. you know soldiers anybody who was in kandahar during the war that's like where you would go to escape things um you know we we would usually get lunch or dinner there every friday night there were you know there was a place that made really bad cake there were souvenir shops. There used to be like a TGI Fridays, a Tim Hortons. They had all sorts of shit, right? But that was like that the, wasn't
0: there while we were there.
2: No, it wasn't. But that was the in theater. <laughs> that was the in theater escape from the war. And okay, um, so we called it the boardwalk. We, we called the podcast the boardwalk to kind of harken back to to that structure and and what it meant to us. Like you know, our fifteen twenty minutes of not being in a war zone. Right. Right. Huh. Where we had cigar night.
1: Was it was it uh, like an open air market,
2: or were,
1: was it?
0: No, no. no, there was like stalls and stuff okay. set up. I mean, it's it, it's just Connex like a, a,
2: turned into stores. Okay,
0: yeah, basically. I mean, it, nothing fancy. And of course, by the time we were there, there's just not much left on it because everything had pretty much pulled out in 2016. Right. So, um, but yeah, we just walk around, man, and uh, and we talked, and that's where we got the idea for the name. So
2: there's an ATM that took your credit card or your debit card and didn't give you money uh, (laughs) from the bank of Afghanistan.
0: Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, eventually the podcast basically morphed into us just talking about current events, especially when the fall of Afghanistan happened. Uh, we, we really, I mean, we predicted that as soon as the podcast started, but we predicted that years ago Mm. though, we were just like, "Yeah, it's going to look a lot like Saigon when we're out of here. And, uh, and of course we were right about that. But, um, but yeah, we uh, we eventually we've evolved now to where we have uh, a lot more guests come on, like some pretty high level guests in the uh, I guess the political analysis world. Would you say mm-hmm. uh, some some veterans come on? We have a lot of you know, like we have journalists come on. We have um, we have academics come on that work with the uh, you know that worked with presidential administrations and stuff, and 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 we just talk about you know global war on terror stuffs, focusing on Afghanistan and and uh, and things affecting that country. So it's pretty niche, I suppose.
4: Hmm.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of a kind of free therapy, you know, you get to get to talk, talk things out and kind of like see everyone's perspective on, on where it went wrong. Because, I mean, I think, I think for most people there's a lack of uh, most veterans, there's a lack of satisfaction in the way the, the war ended and how it was handled. And another thing that kind of made us want to, want to form the, Uh, the podcast is the fact that a lot of generals and upper um, executive branch folks in the Biden administration and probably the Trump administration were either very misled by people that they trusted about the war or were thoroughly Mm -hmm. lying about it. And it was likely a mixture of the two. and there's also a lot of uh, misinformation about what the intelligence community or w- whenever you see them saying, like, the, the IC said this and, it, you know, they thought it would go this way. It, s- it seems from our perspective that there's a lot of lying about that, because when we were there, the things that we were seeing were obvious. Everybody saw them. And for some reason, for, for a variety of reasons that, that we can definitely go over, they don't seem to reach senators or or the president or people in the pentagon
1: hmm right right well yeah i mean what is do you do you just attribute that to like bureaucracy or or the
3: oh oh we i mean i mean we we sorry sorry. We, we directly uh directly bumped into that in our in our time there so um generally what we would see is um people of like full bird colonel or higher grade, usually generals want to deliver the correct message to their uh, superiors Mm. who then deliver the correct message to Congress. And so by the time, by the time us saying the the situation is dire filters its way up the, (laughs) up the ranks, it gets cleaned up for a, for I, I don't know, for protecting careers' sakes, and they end up seeing instead of oh the you know the situation is dire, they see oh the Taliban are on the run, right? Like there's that much of a one eighty of the of the message, and it, I don't, it Afghanistan is such a weird war, like even even beyond like uh, at least my understanding of Vietnam, because the the goal of Afghanistan doesn't seem at the highest levels to be you know to to win to Mm. defeat the enemy and and build a build a stable state Seemed to be hey this is a posting that i'm gonna have for a certain period of time my goal is to not let this ruin my career and move on to something better and i think that's especially apparent when um when the Iraq war was at its height, like Afghanistan was completely taking a backseat to the Iraq war. The Iraq war was the hot,
4: mm-hmm. the
3: hot area where you could, you know, really forward your career. I mean, look at, look at, you know, general Mattis, right. And, you know, several other commanders out there that were able to catapult to higher levels. And Afghanistan seems like it was kind of a, like maintain, don't, don't lose the war and get out before things get too bad. And unfortunately mm-hmm. now that, we're out of it. You know, no one's taken responsibility. It seems like almost everyone is blaming the intelligence community for lying to them. When in reality, they decided what they wanted to hear and, and uh, went with that message instead of the truth.
4: Hmm.
1: I, I remember hearing you guys talk about, um, uh, how for formation, like if the, if the Colonel says show up at this time, then the next dude says, okay, 15 minutes earlier than that. And it trickles down. And by the time you show up for a formation, you're like two hours early. It's kind of the opposite effect. Whereas, uh, for formation, everybody tries to do better and pass it on down, down the ranks, uh, when reporting the situation, everybody tries to make it sound better and passes it up the ranks and everybody just, uh, benefits from the, the stretching of the truth, I guess.
2: Yeah, like no nobody wants to deliver bad news. Once you reach a certain um once you reach a certain rank in the military, you don't want to be the person delivering bad news. I guess this is another another benefit to being a contractor, right? You're just these are the facts on the ground. Do with it what you will. Right. You know, I'm not the one briefing fucking Congress. But you would you would you would tell the colonel, Hey, here's what it is. The colonel goes, Well, that's not very good. Can we church that up? No, not really. We can't, but you know, it's your information. Do it to what you want, and it goes to the next guy, the next guy, the next guy, and then you you get what we got in August of 2021, where you know the president saying that the Afghan forces are going to hold because there's 300,000 of them, mm. and they have you know the they're the best equipped military in Central Asia, which that was true; they were the best equipped military in Central Asia. But they're sure as fuck weren't 300,000 of them, and you have to figure half of those people are not direct combat arms, anyways. The other half. You know, of those, thirty percent don't exist. Ten percent are high on drugs. You know, forty percent are in provinces that have lost substantial amounts of ground where would it wouldn't be worthwhile to try to fight back. But these are all th- and and those are best guesses. You know, wild guesses without doing any intel work in the last intel work in the last six years. I would imagine the numbers would not have looked good in August of twenty twenty one, and had the information not been filtered up, the president probably would have known that.
1: Right. Right. Well, and then also, like, as we saw, the motivation wasn't necessarily there or or maybe the motivation in the opposite direction was strong with some of them. You know, when you're when you're faced with fighting the enemy and seeing your family killed or surrendering, you know, that's like that yeah, the,
2: the year and a half after we signed the Doha agreement between that day and the fall of Kabul, the Afghan military took, you know, they, they took record casualties because you know the Doha Agreement said don't target Americans. It didn't say shit about mm. the Afghans, right? The Afghan right. government was was uh, not involved with these talks at all. So the Taliban, you know, they were barely attacking co- or you know NATO forces as it was. It was mostly IDF and things like that. But once once that agreement was signed, they just doubled down on targeting Ansar. Mm. I mean, record casualties. You know, in terms of KIA and WIA to the point that we get to August and they've been so debilitated, right? The the true believers within the Afghan military who want to see this, this great Afghan Republic, they haven't been paid in six months, hmm. you know, their buddy, you know, he, he skipped town because he got tired of getting paid. The other guys, you know, dead or never existed in the first place, their commanders lying about, you know, who, how many people he has, cause he's pocketing that money. Cause he's got a villa in Dubai you know, ready to catch a helicopter when it all goes to shit anyways,
4: Hmm.
2: I mean, I I, I was really, it's one thing for somebody like the president to say, oh, well, you know, the intel community said this, like, well, we, we fucking didn't, and you should know that. Um, It's another thing when he said, you know, the Afghans quit, hardly the case, right? The Afghans didn't quit. The Afghans were set up for failure by the Americans. Hmm
1: yeah maybe some understanding
0: of the pressures they were under sorry and i feel like we we diverted your podcast i feel like into a uh, why the (laughs) afghan war failed which is kind of our passion because it's basically it's a fairly simple story basically it all gets filtered down as it goes up the chain and it gets watered down but um yeah Yeah. so i I didn't want to turn into that but um yeah so but yeah that's that's we got that idea i think yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) You know, that's what that's what we wanted to cover. So. But
2: but you you did ask. You know, you're you're talking about just you know, why does this happen, and, and is there too much bureaucracy? In World War II, we had one flag officer, general, you know, one star general or above, for every six thousand service members. Today, we have one for every fourteen hundred. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So the you know the the military, you know. I always, you know the, the the us government is just a giant jobs program right and the military is no different you look at some of the command structures for these places and there's jobs that just should not exist we have all these different commands now we have material command transportation command futures command which nobody can explain what futures command does but they're in austin texas and they're fucking expensive now i'm sure futures command is important i'm not saying they shouldn't exist but the point is just the army has gotten so big right it's so bloated now and, and it's getting you know bloated for the sake of officers creating positions for for people who go to west point or go to texas AM rotc or north carolina state rotc to move up in the ranks and and you know get themselves a nice cushy position with a place like raytheon or lockheed or boeing when they get out of the military
4: hmm
1: yeah i didn't re- that's a crazy stat. I did not realize that. That I mean, that does really speak to the change in in uh, focus, I guess, and a lot of the stuff you're talking about. And also, bureaucracy resides in the upper echelons. So, so the the higher up you get, the more motivated you are to to maintain the bureaucracy and and fulfill its its desires as opposed to the goal of the military. So, so that, yeah, well, that that makes it a lot of fun. I bet. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. Go ahead, Stu. Oh yeah, I
3: mean, it it, it kind of culminates to the point where if you're if you're a full bird colonel or above, you're basically a politician. Like, oh <laughs> like
4: yeah. At that,
3: at, at, at that point, most <clears throat> I, I, I I don't know if it's most, but a a large enough percentage of them are playing it safe with their careers and positioning
2: themselves more than um, doing the right thing for their troops. Yes. I'd say. I mean, you look at my, my last duty station was uh, First Corps up at Joint Base Lewis McCord in Washington, and you have a Corps commander, and you have a deputy, or you know, the commanding general, then you have a deputy commanding general. That makes sense. He's just number two, right? Then you have all your different sections, your G1, your G2, your G3, um, who are all full board colonels. You have your chief of staff, who's also a full board colonel. You have your deputy chief of staff. Each of them has a you know a, a fucking aide, like do and, and the aides are all you know captains or lieutenants sometimes majors usually a captain or a lieutenant right probably a, a an academy graduate right mm-hmm. it's just it's it's a good old boys club if you ever see um, and, and the Navy's really bad at this if you ever see like a, a chain of command wall that has like everybody that is an officer that reports to the next guy that reports to the next guy that ultimately is your boss the navy guys always position themselves so that you can see their fucking Annapolis ring on the uh in the picture <laughs> right cuz <laughs> cuz Cause cause that's so important to them like that's what they base their entire careers around hmm. is just getting more status sure. to the detriment of the mission if necessary
1: hmm. yeah
3: Oh yeah, we'll we'll bitch about the military all day if you let us. <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go we'll go full bore. There's plenty there's plenty we uh, we get hot about.
1: Right. Well, yeah. I mean that like like I told you b- before we started, I don't really have like a real uh, direction. I mean, I'm like I said, yeah. Wherever wherever you guys take it, I think I, like Kyle was saying, um, what what we were talking about earlier, I think that's like a good flavor for for your guys' show. Like from what I've heard if someone's interested in, in like the, the more technical stuff, um, and it, it, I think it's very fitting. Like I was saying earlier, you guys are all like intelligence analysts, very, uh, you got, you got a bigger picture view than your average soldier watching dishes or, you know, marching through the desert or whatever you had, maybe not a full view, but you had like a much bigger, bigger picture view than your average, uh, soldier. So, so for you to have that focus now just totally makes sense, and and I've enjoyed what I've heard. So, anyways, there's that.
4: Yeah,
2: the, the biggest thing that what what makes our field different than others, and it's, it's it's certainly not to knock on any other field because I think pretty much every job is important except for like MPs and cooks. Um, and that's personal. That's not professional. I just don't like them as people. Right. Um. <laughs> You know what what makes us a lot different is it's just a lot of reading and critical thinking and understanding. like having all this knowledge that is absolutely mm. useless to anybody until it becomes useful to somebody you know understanding especially in a place like afghanistan understanding tribal dynamics and you know kyle was a we call it a green and white analyst which is political and military leaders and like you know a large portion of that is understanding Who gets along? Why they get along? Why they don't get along? Are they from the same tribe? Are they from the same city? Are they from warring factions? Like, does somebody have a blood feud with somebody else? And those things matter to the colonel who's about to go on a, uh, you know, go go to a key leader engagement because he's got to know what to say or what not to say, Mm -hmm. and he's not going to know that unless somebody like Kyle is sitting around reading through thousands of boring ass reports that are all in this boring ass HTML format, right? You know, but that's what he's there for.
0: Right. I missed out on the Adderall train. I think we all did. I was not on any of the Adderall stuff. I think that would have made our job infinitely better. I hope all the new zoomers doing this job are just I bet they're awesome at it, dude. They're just like everyone's on Adderall, man. I bet they can pour through some documents, dude.
1: Yeah, huh. The uh have, have any of you guys seen the movie uh Hyena Road? I have not.
2: I have. Okay. At that at, at the uh uh, oh fuck the uh, our colonel when we were in Kandahar actually is the one who's like I just saw this it was a good movie and so I watched it like two weeks later and I thought it was awful. <laughs>
1: okay, well because what you were saying kind of reminded about what, like what Kyle did especially kind of reminded me of some of the some of the things in there like just the the interplay of who's who like it's a totally different culture over here in America like if, if for some reason if you had to assess you know uh, the state of uh, iowa right it's relatively straightforward there's some differences between states but it's pretty much the same whereas over there like you're dealing with people who don't even recognize some them, themselves as afghans you know so so it's com- it's completely different you, you can't just walk into a meeting and be like yeah yeah potatoes are idaho <laughs> You can't just walk in a meeting and be like, oh, hey, hello, sir. How are you? Like, maybe you're supposed to talk to a certain person first. Or I, I don't know, Kyle, like what's what's kind of some yeah. Things?
0: I, they just all missed the ball on Afghanistan entirely. Um, so there's just a very poor understanding of the way things worked, particularly tribal dynamics. I mean, if you want to talk about an interesting story, I mean, uh, one of the big power brokers in southern Afghanistan was a guy named Golaga Shirzai. He assisted the United States in overthrowing the Taliban back in 2001 when we invaded. Mm. Um, And what we basically did is he had a bunch of tribal enemies that hated him. And so he would give us, he would help us in our counterterrorism efforts by giving us lists of people that were conspiring with insurgents against us, right? Well, it turns out we'd go bust in their doors, you know, in the middle of the night with special forces, you know, and shoot them or take them prisoner and it turns out they're just his personal enemies like i mean they, they may or may not have any sort of right to, you know and we were doing that for years right we were we had we just like oh i trust this guy you know and not not realizing all this is happening mm. But i mean not to say i had a very important job compared to like Stuart or zach who had to analyze like movement of enemy fighters you know that's what they were doing so which was more important it's just like i got to see a really cool picture of like how uh, the politics and, and like the, and that worked and just how underprepared we were for it. Just the fact that nobody writes like reads and writes there. literacy rates so low. So you have a, um, a very poor, like documented history there, you know, yeah. I it's like, so, you know, it, it's, it's a very, very strange place. I mean, there's a documented history, but there's not a whole lot of documented stuff about like a lower, at, at like a lower level in the province. So, um, that's just one thing, but yeah. Uh, poor understanding of the situation I think
2: I I think an even better example Kyle is didn't we over the course of 20 years completely flip tribal allegiances in the Ruzgan because we were providing too much protection like too much assistance to one uh tribe over another and so eventually a tribe that used to be like pro-us became so heavily uh supportive of the u.s that the other tribe became the supporters of the Taliban despite hating everything about them for the, the previous decade like that's the type of shit that would happen
4: hmm.
0: yeah i mean you're not wrong i mean that the cons in aruzgan particularly that's a, you could make you could make one of the greatest movies on afghanistan about the cons in aruzgan and i have a single american in it it would just be like you could have them off screen i'd love to make this movie man. i would yeah, make it movie. Make, make it in Pashtu, dude like you could have I have always had this idea and it would just be about the con power brokers and a And you could have off screen Americans when they come in but like make these deals and stuff, but just it's insane. I mean it's like it's it's the best Martin Scorsese mob movie turned up to a hundred. It's just wild. And these stories are not told. Hmm. So that's that's one thing we really wanted to do with our podcast too, is kind of tell some of the stories. Yeah, yeah. The con the cons are like
3: Shakespearean. So like a Aru- is a place that I don't think a lot of people back home have heard much about i think if you've heard of afghanistan you've heard of like kabul or kandahar pretty much or Helmand. right and a aruzgan is <clears throat> the the khan the khan family were like the big warlords there and actually uh, uh karzai who was the first president of uh, afghanistan was um very closely aligned with the khan's and he actually directed us to go rescue um uh, what was his name pal his first name
0: well we rescued uh, john Muhammad khan and we yeah, also john we rec- rescued golaga shirzai and kandahar too but yeah the khans yeah we basically got or i think i can't remember off the top of my head i think karzai negotiated for his release or rescued him from prison yeah he,
3: I'm pretty sure he convinced us to, like, conduct an operation to go rescue him. But, yeah, on a cra- crazy, like, Shakespearean level stuff, like, John Muhammad Khan's kids ended up uh, becoming bitter enemies because one of them basically received, like, the warlord ship and the younger brother was upset that he did and they, they were, like, constantly... Huh. Fighting, and eventually the older brother is assassinated by the younger brother. <laughs> the younger brother goes and tries to consolidate power, but he can't, so he turns to the Taliban. And like, oh, there, there's all of these little stories in Afghanistan that are like, in in very small areas. Like in an area the size of Rhode Island, you could have like a whole epic play play out throughout the years. And
2: it's just, oh, mm. it's a fascinating area. Madiullah Khan kept that fucking highway open unless you didn't pay him. <laughs>
1: yeah the the effectiveness of of local involvement sometimes can't be overstated or understated overstated there we go <laughs> hmm what uh did any of you have have like contact with the locals or or were you were you entirely separate
0: oh no we we were pretty much separate okay. we could send out human human intelligence analysts to go out and uh and they would have to work through interpreters right so you'd have interpreters attached to you and you'd send your human guys out and they'd go on patrols or they'd go meet key leaders. And at the time we were there, there were so few soldiers that there weren't really, a there wasn't really a whole lot of American contact with the locals unless the actual military delegations came onto base and were allowed where we were. Mm. There's a whole, that's a whole thing too. And so, sure. of course, they'd be unarmed in their own country, right? right? You had to give your weapons up. I'd go like get the governor from time to time at the, the gate and you know, give, give your weapons up. It's just wild, yeah.
3: Hmm. Yeah, funnily enough, the most um, engagement I had with the locals when I was in the military was a uh, a secondary BS assignment outside of my job, where we had to we had to go pull guard in the temporary holding facility we had at Bagram before they get moved to the big prison. So I got to I got to watch over Taliban people, but. Hmm. yeah now we were we were computer people there's no air air conditioning out with the locals so we stay in the skiff and do do our computer nerd stuff
1: yeah gotta watch over the electronics you know somebody's got to do it oh yeah (laughs) one the so there's two questions i like to ask everybody one being how would you advise a kid the other one is um what's what's something you know now that you wish you knew before you joined the military. So, so uh, consider yeah. that. Take take
0: it at your leisure. I mean, I'll I'll drop it on you now. So, to go back to your first point, uh, a lot of people, because I, mean, I don't come from a military family, I come from a, a drafty military family. Mm. So, oh, sure. Um, so like my grandfather was in World War II, and my Dad's brother's from Vietnam. And, and of course, my dad's like, why in the world would you join the military? Like, <laughs> It's horrible. Right. But I mean, but as a man, I think, especially you feel a desire to do it. It's like you can read, mm. uh, like I was, I was just reading a book. And, and sorry, this is going to be on a tangent. I promise it circles back. I was just reading a book on the golden age of piracy. Right. And in my head, I know it would suck. I know it. I know it sucked to be on a ship in the 1700s. It has to be horrible. Right. It has to be absolutely horrible. But you read it. You're like, dude but you're just hanging out with your bros which is what i did in the plane you know what i mean so it's like so what would i would tell somebody is like man like don't you know go for like the the camaraderie i didn't realize how strong the camaraderie stuff would be and Mm. how important it is to to have friends and uh and that 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 shaped my life a lot more than any of the missions i went on Is just meeting people and 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 developing a camaraderie and learning from those people much more than just you know fulfilling the whims of a government that had no idea what they were doing in that country to begin with mm, you know sure so yeah it's like i mean if you're gonna join going back to the first question like yeah meet friends be be willing and open to to talk to the people uh, you'll you'll learn a lot from the people you work with and that that'll, that should shape you into a better person at the end of the day
2: that starts start smoking you'll make a lot of friends
0: True. You heard it here first. Right. Yeah. Pick up cigarettes.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, no, go ahead. Go uh, ahead, Zach. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Walt. No, no, please. I, I've got a tangent. So,
2: uh, I mean, I, I don't see my, my parents both retired from the army. So, I, there's not a lot I didn't know, like, just in terms of day-to-day. I, I you know, parents to call I'll come home sometimes at seven o'clock at night. I'm like, okay, well I can expect come home sometimes at seven o'clock at night. My parents would, you know, have a random ass day off. Okay, well I guess I can expect to have a random ass like that, that there wasn't a whole lot. Um, right. the only thing my parents didn't teach me was some of the some of the the insider shit, like you know, the boxer grid squares and shit like that that they do to fuck the young soldiers. Um otherwise and and that never got me except for the the pricky seven i thought it was a radio unit because it sounds like a radio unit um outside of that there's not a whole lot i didn't know going in um you know but I, I would i would echo kyle's sentiment right once you're in you know don't just stay in your don't go to work and then just go to the barracks go Go do shit. Go, you know. Don't actually pick up smoking. It's a terrible habit. And you'll die. But you know, if people are outside smoking, just go outside and talk to them. Shoot the shit. You know. Mm, sure. Uh, you know the 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 friendships I I made in the army are invaluable. Right. I I know we we don't always talk the greatest about the army, and it's it's more about things outside of our jobs. Um, but the, the friendships, you know, I I've had people that I got out in 2015 and. You know there's people i didn't talk to for four five six years and then mm. i called them up one day and we talked for like two hours straight and that's and it's like you know you didn't miss a beat and, and i don't know if you really get that in in many other professions hmm. yeah i mean, uh, <clears throat> I, mean I, I had a pretty
3: positive experience with the military all around i guess one thing i'd change is i wouldn't sign on for five years right off the bat because that's just stupid like you don't know what you're getting into and you're screwing yourself out of like an extra bonus on the way towards your towards your career and that was kind of dumb and i did it for free too i didn't even have a bigger bonus for it so that was that was dumb 20 year old stew just being like
2: ah whatever i'll just jump into right. it it'll be fine um, if i could go back i would not have reenlisted yeah <laughs> Fair enough. But I, I mean,
4: I, I
3: don't know. I, I was pretty happy with it. I, I got to, I, I ended up getting lucky and getting assigned to a special forces unit and got to deploy three times with them. So like, I was, I don't know. I was largely pretty happy with it. Happy with the work. Um, hmm. Yeah.
1: Were you, were you with special forces your, your whole time in the inactive service?
3: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So from, 2012 to
4: 2016,
3: yeah, hmm. and and the the cool thing with with SF, at least if you're if you're a, a pogue or you know support soldier, is you have six month deployments, so you're not just stuck out there for a year and a half. Right, it's kind of nice, and they, they had they had to do that because SF was basically carrying Afghanistan for about the first eight nine years Mm, okay and just just getting just getting like burnt out on it because you know it's these it's these small teams and they're they're out places for like at least a year probably a year and a half you get home for six months and then you're back out for like another year so it was just
4: Mm. it was it was
3: unsustainable for those guys but yeah sure quick quick deployments and you get to support cool missions there's no there's no guarantee of it if when you're when you're going in. So you can't count on it. Just need that old old lucky stew enlistment time.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Because um, when I think of like the military, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, I think like, say, World War Two guys are in the trenches or World War One or, or World War Two. You know, they're whatever you're in the hedgerows of Normandy and you're you're fighting with the three guys beside you it totally makes sense that the camaraderie would be there but you guys having had a non-combat position still the camaraderie's there and and uh so it's not necessarily just a function of um the guy next to you being able to save your life and you saving his um i don't know what what any thoughts on that or
3: I don't know. I mean, we did review each other's PowerPoint, so you know, there's a little, there's a little <laughs> half in each other's back. But yeah, no, I mean, I think, I, I think you know, if you're if you're stuck in a room with with other people for for you know twelve hours a day, you're either gonna, you know, become close friends or hate each other. Mm. And I think, I think we encountered a mixture of uh, both of those things with various people we worked with. But yeah, I mean, it's everyone kind of being together on on one mission that you're focused on and you're basically, you know, committing your life to for an extended period of time Mm kind of draws you together, especially when you're spending, you you know, you're spending all of your, your limited off time, you know, hanging out because, because like with the, with the boardwalk, the boardwalk was kind of the center of like off time for us outside of our jobs. We'd go, go down there, we'd play some cards against humanity or smoke a cigar and just, hang out and kind of kind of shoot the shit with each other and you get sort of interconnected in each other's lives there hmm. and, and and the weird thing with the the military is you just end up being able to you know hit hit people up that you were working with you know years years down the line and that connection is you know still there in some form a lot of
4: times hmm.
1: yeah yeah well and i, I was just realizing. Um, like Kyle being in the airplane with what, four or five guys, you said.
0: Yeah. Three other days. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then,
1: and the other guys being, uh, in, in a skiff with eight or 10 or 15 people, there's kind of a feeling of, of like a small team almost, you know, you're with the same guys all the time. Um, so I guess that, that kind of answers somewhat of the, the camaraderie element, but I mean, that's, it's true throughout the military.
2: I've it's heard. certainly a lot different, um, you know, because when you deploy, you're deploying with people that, you know, especially you know, I was a specialist, I was in the barracks with all my buddies, like you saw all these same people every single fucking day of your life. Um, but then the weekends would hit and maybe somebody would head out to Charlotte for the weekend or somebody would drive out to the beach for the weekend or you just didn't see somebody for two or three days and that was just normal. And then you deploy and you're still just you're just doing your job. You're doing it in a different environment um your days are longer but you see each other every single fucking day hmm. and you know like it, it never felt like there was a greater sense of urgency when I was in Iraq to do something compared to when I was at Fort Bragg that's just where I happened to be doing the job that day at the same time when we all came back it was so different it was completely different in how we saw each other how we interact we had you know we had grown closer you know as you know, essentially to be a family right because That's just, that's who you, you saw every fucking day for the last year. And you've just grown to trust that person even more. And now they're, they're more important to you than they were a year ago. And you're more important to them than you were a year ago, right? That's something that transcends your MOS. Sure. Being, being somewhere for a year straight is going to change that relationship regardless of your job.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, I don't have anything to add. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to tell somebody else. I don't, I, what I know now, I'm just glad I met the friends I had. You know, that's, mm. that's the best thing to come out of it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, and, and and use your GI Bill benefits, man. If you sign up to the military, sign up for the GI Bill. Even if you say I'll never go to college, it's a hundred dollars a month for the first year. Out of your paycheck it's worth it hundred dude. because five years from then you may decide you want to do something else man you got four years of college and housing allowance and your and kids it. are
3: grandfathered in yeah
0: uh, sure. you have to yeah, I think you have to re-enlist for that you have to do like 10 years or something to have your family use it so
3: oh well never mind be yeah. a selfish dick do your do your contract and then I, use, I'm serious like, like, you do it. Down.
0: it's a percent a month for 12 months, man, it's it's the best thing I ever did because I had no idea what I wanted to do in life. And it's just like nice to have that sitting there. It's like an escape from whatever you do.
2: Have you figured out what you want to do yet, Kyle?
0: Hell no. I don't consider myself an adult. I took up smoking pipe tobacco recently, though, if you guys want to talk about hobbies. T- look at like, you
3: sledgehammer
0: it's like whis- it's like whiskey man you get all these varieties to try and sample anyway it's a whole different thing
2: between that and fly fishing you're not gonna have any money to send your kids to college
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're right. a true millennial <laughs> yeah the uh i didn't I didn't know that about uh the G i bill i just I just assumed that it was automatic I didn't know there was a element on your part
0: yeah yeah, you have to elect in it. it okay. I mean, it's pretty much they encourage you to do it. But some people are like, no, I'm going to keep that, dude. $100 a month for 12 months is not worth four years of free school. Dude. <laughs> like, It doesn't even come out on the balance sheet. You know what I mean? So 100% do it. Even if you're like, I'll never go to school. You might you might change your mind after after a few years.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I did not have it in my first contract. But it's not because I declined it. Um, it's because I had the student loan repayment program because um, – I lost my scholarship after my second semester. So that nice in-state tuition I was getting became out of state overnight. And so I had a student loan for one semester for like $16,000. And I was like, well, I guess I'll use the army to pay that back. Cause I don't want to fucking pay that back. Um, I reenlisted my whole thought process was I'll reenlist and get the GI bill. Like I could have gotten out, I would have been, Oh, how old would I have been? Like twenty-three or twenty-four. I could have contracted in Afghanistan, made double what I made when I did go to Afghanistan and just paid for school out of pocket. Mm. But I was young and stupid, so it is what it is. And the reenlistment bonus wasn't that good either.
1: Yeah, well okay, so so uh speaking on hobbies or, or just whatever, what was what was transitioning out like? I I mean I assume moving into having moved into contracting kind of, uh, eased, ease the situation. But what was, what was that like? How did it affect you or, or, uh, what are your thoughts on that?
0: So, yeah, mine is a weird, mine is a weird story, man. So, um, it goes back to like, even when, before I was in the military, like, so my wife is from Russia originally. So, um, she's an American citizen, but her mother at the time had a, um, was not an American citizen. So um, basically, I mean, the DOD didn't care. I mean, it was 2011, whatever. They, I mean, they gave me a top secret clearance and everything. So I had a top secret clearance and um, SCI and all that. So, um, and I thought that was just what I was going to do the rest of my life, man, intelligence mm. work. Because I'm like, I, I, you know, I I was good at it. I enjoyed it, you know, I, you know, to a certain degree. Um, So but when I got out of the army and I started applying for jobs, um, I was applying to all these places and they'd, they'd hire me on and then they would never accept my clearance at the end of the day. And I didn't learn they wouldn't top secret clearances don't transfer between agencies if the agency won't take it. So the DOD had my clearance, but say the NSA or the whoever's in charge of the contract, the NSA Mm -hmm. or the Department the Defense Intelligence Agency, if they don't want my contract, if they don't want my clearance because they don't they don't trust me or whatever, they don't have to take it. So I would just they would be like, hey, man, you can't. Sorry, your mother-in-law is Russian. You can't work here. Even though I had literally worked in intelligence for five years. Right. So I had to, basically, I was stuck doing DOD contracts, which greatly limited my intelligence capability at the time. And um, I was sitting there in Afghanistan. I'm like, dude, I'm not doing this the rest of my life, man. Mm. Like the writing was on the wall. It's all falling apart. So um, that takes me to the transition part. And, and I remember one time I'm like sitting outside. I don't know if Stuart Zach were in the particular bunker. But it was like in the middle of the night. And we're getting rocketed. And like, we got like nine or 10 rockets one night. And I was like, shit, man, I should go out and sit in the bunker instead of in this tin can I live in. So I'm just out there in my underwear. I'm like, dude, am I going to do this the rest of my life, man? Like, this kind of sucks. So I started looking at going back to school. And uh, I was like, man, I'm glad I got that GI Bill because it allowed me to get get a degree. I actually work in case management as a registered nurse now. Mm. Um, and I, I got my master's degree on the GI Bill too. And, and I went and did that. And the transition was awful because you come from a, a world where you're like respected or at least people listen to you. Right. And now you're back in school with like 19, 20 year olds and you just want to not strangled them but it's like the instructors drive you crazy right you know like right. they're just like they'll call you in and be like i don't like the way you worded this sentence in this paper or something like dude my paper's written in the pentagon dude like what do you mean you don't like the way i worded the sentence? you know like fine with the president who cares i worded how it's fine <laughs> it's been fine earlier you know what's your fucking problem kind of thing and so you have to like temper that and then plus like having to support a family go to school and work at the same time because you know you still gotta pay a mortgage it's very stressful, man. That's one of the hardest thing I think a veteran can do is like leave that community and transition into something entirely different. Mm. And like, I mean, I was always good at school. So like, that's not like a brag or anything. It's just like, it, it's a game. School's a game. And if you're good at it, you're good at it. If you're not, you're not, it sucks. But like, I mean, I was able, I was able to transition out and, you know, I've been doing this for like five years now and I, I'm glad I did it. But man, that pain of like having to switch industries was, Dude, I would n- I would never want to do it again. I'll put it that right. way. Some of the hardest years of my life were trying to, to, to do that. So um, th- that's 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 what I'd say as far as the transition goes. It's possible, but it's rough.
4: Hmm.
0: Yeah,
2: I uh, I found college to be extremely easy <laughs> when uh, when part two came around. You know, I, I, I left the University of Arizona with like a one point five GPA. I ended up graduating and getting my, mat, my bachelor's degree with like a 3.6. So like, like It was a lot easier, but that's because of shit that I, I gained from the army, like a little, little bit of discipline and just priority of effort and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I would certainly echo Kyle's sentiments, especially. So I got out of the army and I went to college for a year before, um, before I contracted and that year was miserable. And that, that was the, from the army to college, literally overnight, like when I was driving to Idaho, I stopped at Boise State University to do my veteran orientation before I got mm. to where my wife was at Eastern Idaho. I was still in the army when I started school. Um, and that was really difficult, and, you know, dealing with, for the most part, like Kyle said, teachers, right? I. I'd, I had a teacher in my communications class that wanted to talk about anything except communications. And, like, this, it was super frustrating. Like, why did I just spend 200 bucks on this book if we're not going to fucking use it? And said, we were, it was a current events class. Like, everybody's a little racist. Like, that's totally irrelevant to Communication 101, but whatever. (laughs) Um, Like, that bothered me more than, you know, the 18 year old kid who's like, well, somebody told me this. And I just wanted to say, well, what have you found? What did you. Like, what did you dig in to mm. figure out whether or not that's true? You know, sure. I just got used to, to, you know, people who are 18, 19, 20 years old, not thinking for themselves because, well, they weren't in the army. We have to do a little bit of that. Um, not their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. Like, like Kyle said, the, the teachers who had issue with my, my writing style or the way I presented myself, I didn't swear in class or anything like that, but I've always been rather direct and to the point, and that was apparently off-putting. Whatever, right. Then I contract in Afghanistan. I loosen up a little bit, come back, change schools, and no issues after that.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, I agree. Uh, the contracting is a a good sort of bridge out of the out of the military. Um, mm. I think I think it's an easy way to get a little bit of a, a nest egg before before moving on to something else. If you want to. Uh, and before you get into, um, into college sure. or whatever, so it, it, it worked, it worked out. It was fun. Go, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it to people. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it long term, and especially if you, if you end up having a moral compunctions against it, which I think we all, eventually, uh, eventually grew. Mm, sure. But uh, yeah, go, go be a merc and get your blood
2: money for a little while, man. It's a, it's
3: a good time, and then go, go live your life.
2: Yeah, the, the most off putting part of contracting is just that it's contracting, right? It's not steady work. Um, that's why I didn't go into contracting immediately when I got out of the army, because I could have done that and been just fine. And I was like, no, I'd rather I'd rather make less money and have job stability, right? And then I wound up sure. contracting so I could be debt free when I decided to make less money and have job stability. <laughs> right. it, it all it all works out in the end, right? Just some some ass pain along the way.
1: Yeah, that, I hadn't thought of that component of it. I think, Stu, you mentioned the uh, building a nest egg or whatever, so you're a little more financially set because you hear a lot about guys who get out, and then they, um, they're they just like, wait, I have to provide my own housing and food, and just they're struck with the difference, and, and they end up rejoining after maybe a year or two. Like There's a pretty high rate of that. But like you're saying, if you contract and then you get a nest egg, you know, now you feel a lot more stable um, and ready to take the world on, I guess
0: the army recidivism, right?
2: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) That's that whole have a plan thing I said earlier.
0: Right. Right.
3: Yeah. But I mean, I I think, I think a lot of people kind of rush their way out of the military, unfortunately, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of great resources available to you, but yeah, for for me, I just one of my one of my sergeants, uh, sergeants, his wife um, worked at a contracting place. She's like, "You wanna, you wanna go make make some good money over there?" I'm like, yeah, "Whatever, I got nothing else going on." That's that's kind, it's of, <laughs> kind of kind of been my uh, my attitude for a lot of major decisions in my life. Right. Uh, it took took a little while to grow out of, but yeah, it was. Uh, I I mean, I'm, I'm I'm happy with it. It ended up working out, but. Of course, while while you're over there, I don't know an interesting thing with a uh, with contracting is people often experience pretty heavy um, philosophical and political awakenings um, while while on their, uh, <laughs> their first contract. Really? I know, okay, I know I did, man. I I, I came out of the army pretty uh, pretty conservative, and then I had left contracting pretty uh, libertarian. Oh, it's okay. Kind of, sure. of eye opening. Yeah. There's there's this great movie that I I always uh, try to blast out for people called the Pentagon Wars. Mm. Came out in 1998. It has uh, Kelsey Grammer who played Frasier um, on the show Frasier and Cheers, and uh, Kelsey uh, Carrie Elway's okay who was. Uh, was in the princess bride but yeah basically it it shows all of the waste that goes into um, military contracting and uh, development of of projects the movie's about the uh the bradley um, armored personnel carrier
1: oh yeah and yeah. how
3: it, it it basically went from a simple idea of hey make a thing that can move troops and has some as a machine gun on. right and it exploded into like a like a 10 year like like 16 billion dollar project that um ended up being less effective the more they messed with it right and and it's i don't know it, it's some it's something that kind of kind of hit close to home when i realized man why why are we still in afghanistan <laughs> this this war is never ending and there's a lot of dumb people that shouldn't have jobs that are over here and for some reason the military is cutting down on personnel and sending more contractors, which is just costing more money.
4: Mm. It
3: balloons up. So I, I, we, I think, I think collectively we kind of made our, uh, made our taxpayer blood money and then, and then went off to try and try to do something else afterwards. It's kind of, it's kind of like how Ayn Rand took, uh, took unemployment pay at the at the end of her life because she paid into it Dan. <laughs>
2: Objectivist, you, you begin have, you to conceive. That is a fantastic. Yeah. That is a fantastic <laughs> yeah. comparison. Yeah. Thank you for the. Fountain mark, we we, no we did away. our. T-
3: <laughs> we did our time in the military. We got. We got our little slightly hypocritical blood money for a bit, and then we can, we
2: can go on and do our thing. I, think I absolutely told myself when I got out. I was like, I'm not going to be a contractor. Fuck that. No, no way. I was just so morally opposed to it. For all the reasons Stu just listed, and I was like, you know what? Bills are getting really hard to pay right now. A month later, I'm on a plane to Texas to go to Afghanistan.
1: Huh. Why, why do you – Stu, you mentioned the, the... – Often contractors will have a shift in viewpoint after contracting. Is that all your guys' observation? And what? Why do you think the difference between like if someone's just in the military and they're over there? Why is it that when they're contracting, they have a different viewpoint?
3: I I think I think it more. I I don't know. Honestly, contracting was kind of like going to college for (laughs) for me. I think it just it it more solidified my my views because like when you're I don't know when you're in the military like. I I think I just cared less about political things weirdly, even though I was part kind of partaking in the political process by being, you know, a sort of arm of the
2: executive government fucking employees too.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially essentially being a, being a uh, slightly more, more deadly uh, bureaucrat, but I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I didn't question a lot of things about the war when I was, when I was in as a soldier, and it was it was when I got out, and i, I guess that's a a process of time too'cause i I came in at the tail end of twenty eleven and Iraq was just ending, and so we had a we had a ten year war at that point by the time i'm con- by the time my first contract comes out and I meet these guys, it's twenty sixteen and we've right you know the Af- Afghanistan war is on the verge of you know being able to you know. Go on a date with an
1: adult or something. Right, right. I was
3: trying to think of a cool way to say say that. Well, in
1: Afghanistan you probably. Afghanistan. You know, fifteen years. That's probably yeah. that's good for them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sad. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Actually, actually, Zach had an interesting story about that with his uh, feminism. Class. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Oh, okay.
2: It. So when I was a contractor, I was also taking online classes at the uh, institution I wound up getting my bachelor's degree from, and. I needed to take like a bullshit general elective in like the social sciences. And there was a like women's uh, it, it was like the Idaho version of women's study and feminism or whatever. The book was written by a man, which I find to be just absolutely fucking hilarious, right, that a man wrote a book about feminism. And within the book, he's he's talking about how, uh, you know, different cultures have different definitions of feminism and which I mean, that's probably true. That seems about accurate. You know, there's 7 billion people on the planet. Right. We're not all the same. Right. Um, and one of the examples he tried to use was that, um, you know, it's, it's so detrimental in some societies to be a woman that in Afghanistan, they would dress the, you know, somebody would dress their daughter up as a boy and raise them as a boy. And that practice was called bachabazi. Bazi. That is not what Bachabazi is, right? Um,
1: and I'm he stated sure.
2: this as a fact in a textbook. Oh wow! Um, he has a PhD in nonsense from somewhere university, and I saw that. And I showed—I don't know if Kyle was—Kyle, were you still in Afghanistan when I when that happened? No,
0: no, like, this was after I, showed, I had already started my yeah, journey.
2: I showed Stu and a couple of buddies, and I'm like, "Hey, look at this fucking shit!" And I was like, "Oh my god, I wrote." I wrote to my, my instructor, I was like, hey, I don't know who the hell you need to talk to, but this is factually inaccurate. It's And it's it's not like it's misspelled. This is wholly right. inaccurate, right? You know, Bacha Bazi is, is, you know, pedophilic sex slavery in its purest form. That is not, I'm raising my daughter as a boy because I wish I had a son. That's, no, I think there is a term for that. And Bazi is a part of it because Bazi means boy, but it's mm. not fucking Bacha Bazi. Huh.
0: Yeah. We know we know that very well, dude. The number of times those Afghan commanders are you fighting each other over which boy they're uh raping that week and then killing each other at the checkpoints. Oh my god, dude. Wow. They don't talk about that in the news, but yeah, there's some dark stuff over there in Afghanistan, man. It
1: it reminds me of of uh like with that textbook and then also you guys talking about just what you were seeing in Afghanistan and then what you hear in the news not matching. Um so often um will we trust what we see in the news until they're talking about something that we're an expert in and then we're like well wait that's not right he he must be mistaken and then they shift to another topic and we're like okay now now he's back on a on a train that he understands you know but maybe all of it's that way and they're just kind of (laughs) guessing
0: That's a terrifying thought, Walt. I haven't thought about that, but yeah, when I hear something like I know something about, and I'm like, they're way wrong. Zach said, like, what are they also way wrong about that? I just trust right.
2: <laughs> I just don't trust anybody in the news, um, regardless of which channel they're they're on. Even if they are people that I agree with, I'm like, they're they're probably still not correct, and that I, just being a, a healthy level of skepticism goes a long way.
1: Hmm. Sure. Yeah, no, that's true. There, There's a place for trust, I think. But yeah, it, especially, like, I think the more you know the person, the more you're going to be willing to trust them. But yeah, if there's, I mean, to, to uh, throw myself under the bus, podcasting can be similar. You know, you listen to somebody, somebody's podcast, and you feel like you know them a lot, but you might not know them at all, right? and it's kind of similar to that with the news where it's a, it's a one way relationship. So you feel like you're really close and you can trust this guy, but I'm not picking out any particular person, but the reality is, um, a news anchor, it's not going to hurt him one bit if you up and die tomorrow. So there's, there's really no, I don't know. That's probably too philosophical for me, but like we, we, maybe we have too much trust in somebody who has no, no reason to return that trust i don't know anyways that's by the by
2: <laughs> yeah i mean that's 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 pretty uh i think mean, that's pretty par for the course across the entire news media spectrum right um it, at the end of the day it's getting advertisers to to give the, the company money and what gets them money well we can we can say these things and that will draw people over or we can say those things and that'll draw people over just don't say anything bad about my pillow or we're going to lose them as a sponsor you know <laughs> shit like that is kind of kind of how it works nowadays fortunately um afghanistan was not in the news very often so it wasn't very often that i would sit down and watch the news and go well, that's fucking wrong because i think they only covered it uh in august of 2021 and in right. april of 2021 right otherwise they didn't really fucking like, even they, they've had hearings about the evacuation and all that shit. And you have to like dig to find those hearings. And mm. you know, maybe maybe because we have a a personal relationship with that war, right? But how is that not like on ABC News and even Fox News or CNN? It's on mm-hmm. like C span too. good luck finding it. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Well yeah I don't I don't wanna take up your guys this whole night. Uh any any uh thoughts, any any questions you expected me to ask that I didn't? Any uh or or anything you want to discuss that we haven't touched on.
0: The floor is yours. I don't think so, Walt, man. We uh we covered a lot of stuff and we basically just ranted about the <laughs> failures of the Afghan war, right. which is what pretty much everything we do on a long enough timeline, every boardwalk podcast devolves into uh debating and, and arguing the failures of the afghan war but uh yeah thanks for having us on man
3: yeah really really appreciate the invite it's always always nice to like, like i said at the beginning it's always nice to interface with other military focused podcasts there's there's so few of them now we had a we had a kind of kind of brotherly relationship with these guys that ran uh the panjaway podcast
1: oh yeah and,
3: over over the past few years great great podcast if anyone is interested after listening to this one and before listening to ours to be honest because they have way yeah better, if you listen to theirs way, way better than
2: see. ours theirs is so much better yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and we respect it
2: yeah
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> but hey but yeah yeah you know it, uh, we we really appreciate you have, having us on it's always it's always fun to to talk about it we'll uh We'll, we'll, we'll have we'll have to d- devolve into some uh, some conspiracy theories or something crazy next time.
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, if if you're gonna join the uh, army in the military intelligence field, don't be an all source analyst. Be a systems maintainer or be a single source analyst. Get a specialty, unless you end mm. up like Stu and I. That's that's about what I got.
3: Sig- siginters have the best jobs after they get out, but humanters get laid. <laughs>
4: it goes.
2: Yeah, my sister was a geo winner, so I give her shit. She doesn't work at Kinko's, surprisingly.
0: <laughs> and Walt has no idea what we we're just talking I, about.
1: I I know. I I know it's English.
0: <laughs> yeah the audience yeah right. you basically like zach and Stu. just a if summary zach and Stu are all source analysts and that's what i did when i was contracting mm. that's like where you you take a bunch of uh already kind of made intelligence projects you kind of look at them you break them down to their most important components and then you make powerpoint presentations out of them whereas if you're a specialty then you're using that specialized equipment to get the raw intelligence okay. out so like signals intelligence looks at signals that are going through the air all the time, you know what right. I mean? And you're trying to pull stuff down from those human intelligence guys, are like interrogators or just people that talk to people out on the ground and write reports about it. And then you got geo guys that like, look at maps like, <laughs> <and> work on. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's and then, still they mostly print maps. Print, print maps, yeah, the, yeah, the, print the other maps.
3: single, <laughs> the other single source Intel guys look at us like we're just control C and control V. And if I'm being honest, you know, there's, there, there's some days, right? yeah. Some days they're right. some days it's a little rough. But yeah. then there's it's other good.
2: days where it's important that I know why the Ashoksi and the Norzai hate each other, or the uh, mm-hmm. the Norzai and the Czechsai, I should say. You know, shit like that matters. Yeah. So, so
3: well, yeah. I, don't know. I, I guess to sum it up, somebody has to read all the shit that the other guys put out, and the commander isn't. So we're we're <laughs> a funnel. <laughs> we're, we're we're his we're
1: his right. news news. Right. Alert. There's no way he's going through all that data. Uh, yeah.
2: Hell no. He barely listens to us, <laughs> and we parsed it down to one slide, with pretty colors. Right.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. That. I. I. Yeah. I appreciate it. That was great. I. I really oh. enjoy. I. I tell guys, I don't take the time lightly. Um. You know, everybody's got time, and and we only have so much of it in our lives. So, if someone comes on here and educates a, educates me about. What it's like, I I appreciate the time. So,
2: well, it was yeah. great being on here and kind of you know BSing about stuff that you know I think you're probably the first person we've had on who or we've had on. Sorry, this is your show, not ours. Um, <laughs> the first person we've talked to as a podcast who like doesn't have any exposure to the to the military environment or the MI field. So it's it's a lot different and unique for us as well. It's really appreciated. Right, right.
1: You're like okay we gotta explain this like he's an idiot (laughs) yeah it's
3: It's definitely a unique perspective because you know everyone and their their uncle has a podcast now oh percent. it's like so many
1: yeah but at the same time like i talk to guys all the time i'm like hey if you have an interest start a podcast like there's so much opportunity out there um you know it is it is fun to joke about like yeah everybody's got one um but at the same time it's like just Just do it. Like if you have five listeners, that's five listeners, and and whatever you're saying is a value to them apparently because they're listening. So, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Definitely don't don't plan on it being something that you're going (laughs) to live (laughs) on because again, everyone and their uncle has a podcast.
0: And Beyonce hasn't endorsed ours yet. I don't know. She will.
1: (laughs) I'd, I'd rather get Shakira if I'm being honest. No Swift. Yeah. Nope. Oh, a, T- a T-Swizzle T-
0: endorsement T- would, T- be Swift amazing. would be T-Swift
3: would be bigger for the podcast, but I would like it less. Right. <laughs>
0: I, I would like it more. I take that back. I would like T-Swift more because I want the Swifties uh, tuning into the boardwalk <laughs> to listen to about very niche Afghan topics. Right. Dude, dude uh, speaking
3: of Geo winners, our Geo winner was a Swiftie.
0: Oh, dude, was, All, like it two it of the hardcore. guys I flew with, pilots, were huge Swifties, dude. We had the, we, the 1989 had just come out, dude, and we were blaring it on the plane. <laughs> we got that classified at the secret level so we could put it in the freaking computer.
3: Was that your Flight of the Valkyrie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude, I, I've definitely listened to
0: some Taylor Swift while we rolled people up on the ground before. So, it's so, there. So.
3: Uh, Imagine being in an A-10 and just blaring, we never, ever, ever. ever,
2: (laughs) (laughs) And then the army does stupid shit like that. Gotta love it. Thank you for
1: listening to this episode of How I Embraced the South. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And as my Girl Scout den mother used to say, stay frosty. Um, let's see. Well, hang on. <laughs> let's see. End recording. Oh, yeah. Sorry, are we not done? Jeez, we're in meta recording, dude. Yeah. I thought we were done.
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought so too for a second, and I saw the live thing.